Well, welcome to 2021. Yay, maybe. I don't know. Is it okay to cough yet? Maybe not. You might want to hold those in or run out. Otherwise, you get death glares from people. 2021. A new year. And this year, we are engaged in a series called Behold the Man. We're going to visit the life of Christ over and over again, each and every week, and hopefully every day throughout the whole of the year. You'll remember if you were here last week, I gave you guys an assignment. And here's your assignment for the year. Every single day, read from one chapter of the Gospels. Just one chapter each day and every day. If you're looking for a reminder for that, by the way, um, go to uh, the, uh, what's the Bible app, or version? Get version on your phones. Uh, the Bible Project has a 90-day Gospels plan. You can just start that over and over again as you finish it. Uh, but it will also give you videos that will help you to understand the text that you're reading. So it's a fantastic way to do it. Daily reminders, it'll let you know where you should be, okay? So every day this year in the Gospels, amen? Uh, hopefully you're on day three already. Maybe you've already spent time with Jesus today. If not, do so when you get home. Matthew chapter three. Well, our series that we're going to begin the year with uh, this year is called The Invitation. And we're going to look at many invitations that Christ extends to us in the scriptures. Things that people were concerned about or interested in where it seems like God is going, come try this. Come check this out. And today I want to begin with our first invitation, and that is time with Jesus. This really serves to, to kind of encapsulate where we're going, not just this month, but really with the whole year. Time with Jesus. And let's do that by starting by jumping right into the deep end, shall we? Yeah, why not? We've had coffee this morning, right? At least those who are not heathens. What is time? What is time? For those of you checking your watch, not what is the time? What is time? A watch or a clock, those are sort of arbitrary measurements we've assigned so that we can kind of keep in the same schedules. But what is time? If we're going to talk about time with Jesus, I want us to first begin thinking about this concept, time. It's a big question. It's a big question that has not yet been answered decisively. Some people would say that time is the indecipherable point that separates past from future. It's kind of an interesting way to describe it. Some people have described time as the natural outworking of matter in motion. So long as matter exists, motion exists, and as long as motion exists, time must exist. So you might look at something, you might think, hey, that stand is sitting still right now, but it's not, right? There are atoms moving around in that, and so long as those are moving, time is transpiring. So that's one way to view this as well. Einstein actually wrote a letter to a widow, and I find this amusing. Uh, his his uh, friend died, and so he writes a letter to uh, this man's widow, and he shows all the human empathy of a career academic, which is not much. And he basically assures her that grief is a particular weakness of human beings because we live in the illusion of time. Here's what he said. The distinction between the past, present, and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. He was basically telling her, you shouldn't be mourning because, after all, your husband is, exists at some point in time. You're just stuck in this illusion that you're moving through it. Well, that's helpful. Some people believe that the perception of time is just the way that sentient, that is self-aware beings like you and I, make sense of our perceptions. So think about this. Imagine, if you will, that instead of experiencing time as a sequence, imagine you only experience one moment every five seconds. How disjointed would that be? Imagine experiencing one moment every 10 minutes. You have a sentient 
cognitive recognition of that moment. Wouldn't that be confusing? Imagine that every moment in your life is jumbled up and put in a different sequence. Kind of like you hit shuffle, so that each moment just comes into play at random times. You're like, wouldn't that be odd? Instead, we have this experience of past, present, and future, but are we really there? If you ever want a mind-bending thing to throw your mind into, take a moment and think about time. Moment. We are creatures that exist forever in the present. You are here now. Now, you might think, I don't exist forever in the present. I mean, I existed in the past. Well, when are you thinking about that? Now. But I know where I'm going to lunch today, so clearly the future exists. I'm going to go to putters. But that's a premonition or a thought of something yet to come, and you're having that thought in the present. We are forever in the present. God being existing in all points in time all at once would be forever in the present, a truly omnipresent being which is a little mind-bending. So here we are, stuck in the present, and here's the deal. We're moving along, and now that moment is gone, and that one is gone, and that, was, that one is gone. It's forever locked into the past. You will never get it back. Now, if that has you freaking out, like, I got to get out of here. I'm... <laughs> time, time is transpiring. It is going by, but rest assured, the time you spend investing your mind and your heart and your thought life with Jesus Christ is time well invested. Time is such a strange phenomena that if we weren't in it all the time, if this were not a prison that we were locked in, if we weren't stuck in this fishbowl, it would seem absurd to us beyond all reason. Blaise Pascal, the famed mathematician, theologian, and philosopher, was describing this issue. He said, our soul is cast into a body where it finds number, time, dimension. Thereupon it, rest, er, it reasons, and it calls this nature necessary and can believe nothing else. In other words, you, stuck in the fishbowl, have a hard time imagining anything outside of the fishbowl. You are time-locked. We are time-locked. So why bother thinking about it? Why bother investing our mind to think of what existence looks like outside or apart from time? I mean, isn't this all just that philosophical drivel that's a waste of space? And the answer is no. We, of all human beings on the planet, as Christians, should be radically invested in metaphysics and trying to understand the nature of reality. Do you know why? Because our God is omnipresent, and he relates to time differently. And here's a truth about you. You are made for eternity. C.S. Lewis describes this in his book, The Screwtape Letters. He said this. I realize Screwtape Letter is a, or Letters is a book that is written from one demon to another. That's the idea behind the book. And so they talk about humans as a separate category. Here's what, here's what we read in the screw tape letters. Humans are amphibians, half spirit and half animal. As spirits, they belong to the eternal world, but as animals, they inhabit time. This means that while their spirit can be directed toward an eternal object, their bodies, their passions, their imaginings are in continual change. For to be in time means to be in change. Now, what Lewis says here is really interesting because what he's saying is you and I, we're hybrids, right? We're, we're part physical, part flesh, we're part stuck in time, but there's this other part of us, and that is made for eternity. And this part of us can be directed to eternal matters. And can I take, take it a step beyond and say this part of us can mingle with an eternal God, and what we do in time becomes an eternal feature in our lives. 
In Ephesians, we read this phrase, in the heavenly places, over and over again. And what you find is that we have been seated, past tense, with Christ in the heavenly places. Which means that you, spiritually, right now, are engaged with the living God in the heavenly places, whether or not you recognize it, whether or not you think about it. Depending on what we're doing in time, we actually have moments that touch eternity. I believe this is what happens when we commune with the resurrected Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. I believe you, the animal you, gets to touch eternity and mingle with eternity. Today we're going to be talking about time spent with Jesus. And what I want us to know as we walk away from here is that the moments you spend with Jesus Christ are bigger than looking at texts on a page. These moments will outlast the mountains and the seas and everything that is part of this earth and its nature. Your spirit literally is engaging with an eternal God, and your moments spent there will change you radically. I know this. You cannot spend time with a resurrected Christ and remain an animal. Let's pray, and then let's launch into some discussion on this matter. Our Lord and God, bless this time. Father, open our minds. Give us wisdom. Wisdom that goes way beyond our natural abilities. Father, uh, make the animal subject to the spirit. And I pray, Lord, that as we dig into the text today and throughout this year, that as we mingle with you, we would be shaped into your likeness, your very image, Lord Jesus. We love you. We dedicate our minds and time to you today. Amen. It's about time. It's about time. We're going to be discussing time with Jesus today, and we're going to first deal with the issue of time and kind of look at some features that play into our lives both practically, philosophically, and theologically. Secondarily, I want to look at a case study of how time with Jesus changes, radically changes a human being. We're going to look at Peter, and we're going to look at Acts chapter 4. Lastly, we want to talk about a Jewish festival, and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ engaged in a massive disruption. It's going to be fun. Let's start by talking about time. Time... Do you spend it wisely? Yeah, yeah. It's, it, this is New Year's a great time to think about this, isn't it? Some of us have already tried that new exercise schedule. As I stand here, I am so sore. It, it's, it's painful because I exercise. No, just. <laughs> All right. Um, how precious can a moment be? How terrifying can a moment of time be? Have you ever been involved in some moment? Some, you're doing something and you know, I will remember this for the rest of my life. It's going to stay with me forever. And sometimes that's for the good, and sometimes that's for the bad. Sometimes you've engaged in a horrible sin or something like that, and it's just, it won't leave you alone. Sometimes you've been, witnessed the death of somebody you love dearly. Uh, sometimes it's, it's something beautiful like a marriage ceremony where you, know, you see their bride at the end of the aisle, or you turn the aisle and you see your, your groom's eyes on you. What a wonderful thing. A moment can change so much. But here's the thing. It's not just individual, radical moments that alter us. It's mundane moments. You might not think about this as often. It's easy to see how one major event can shape an entire life, the birth of a child or something of that sort. It's easy to see that change. It's more difficult to see how the mundane things you do every day are radically altering who you are. We shape patterns every day that shape us in return. The patterns we're shaping and putting into our lives, the things we're doing every day, are altering fundamentally who we are. I used to work at King's Island. Have any of you guys done that? 
people who grew up in this area, many of us worked at Kings Island, and I noticed something happening from the mundane job. If you've ever worked at Kings Island, you know how awful that can be. Day in and day out, that magical place is not so magical when you're behind the scenes. I worked at the water park as a lifeguard, and I noticed over the summer months something was changing. First of all, I was inured to heat. Heat was not bothering me anymore. Heat always bothers me. So I would be out in 96 degree days and I'd just be feeling normal because I was exposed to heat so often. But more than that, I remember my feet, I remember walking on a gravel driveway and not feeling it at all. Because every day, all day, I spent time walking on concrete, you know, hot concrete in the sun. And my feet had grown so thick, like the, the soles of my feet had grown so thick. Uh, you know how your heel normally rounds off to the side? Ours came down, everybody who worked there came down at a 90 degree angle. We actually had like edges on our feet. It was so weird. Beyond that though, I remember waking up one night, and this is me, I'm sleeping in bed, and uh, this is what I'm doing. If, if you're not familiar with the lifeguard prospect, it's like people come down the slide. Stand up, please. Exit to the outside. Slides are clear. And I was doing it in my sleep. Have you ever experienced a pattern in your life that was so normative to you that you just returned to the mundane over and over and over again? It shapes us. What about time with Christ? Is that shaping you? Is that part of your normal? Is that part of your everyday? This is why I'm saying, like, preaching sermons about this topic are important. But if you're not spending time with Jesus Christ every day, you're really throwing it away. You're wasting time. Time is a limited resource. Think about that phrase, wasting time, for a moment. Wasting time. It's gone. Never to be recovered. Here's a deep theological truth. In order to waste something, you have to have a limited supply. In order to waste something, you have to have a limited supply. So think of out in the desert, I'm walking around, I've got a canteen of water. If I've just got a canteen of water and I start pouring it out, I'm wasting that water, right? We'd all agree. What if that canteen held an infinite amount of water? Have I wasted water? No, I've got an infinite supply. Now, here's the deep theological truth. God cannot waste anything. Can God waste time? He has it all. Time is no restriction to God. Can, can God waste matter? I've heard an atheist make an argument one time that there can't possibly be a God because think of all the planets and galaxies and this, this elaborate cosmos as it's all spread out. Think about all those things we'll never see and we'll never know. Is that a waste? Not if you have infinite resources. God can create a universe as big as he wants. God can lavish attention on us, and he never runs out. God can lavish love on us, and he never runs out. There cannot be a waste because God is not restricted in the ways we are. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 through 10 describes this nature of God interacting with time. It says, to the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. Time does not impact our God in the same way it does us. So while it's true of God that he can't waste time, it's not true of us. We waste time all the time, don't we? John Ortberg, in his book, uh, When the Game's Over, It All Goes Back in the Box, uses a metaphor, and it's been helpful for me thinking about this topic of time. He says, imagine your life as a series of boxes. Think about it like a calendar, right? And you fill up those boxes with days. And each day, each box has a door that leads to the next box. And you go through it. But once that door closes behind you, that day is gone forever. You can never access it again. It is permanently locked down. It's done. 
And you're going through your life like that day after day, one box to the next box to the next box, and eventually you'll come to a box that doesn't have a door leading out. And your time on earth will be done. What are you doing with today? Where is your day being spent? Time is a limited resource. How we spend it will fundamentally alter who we are. The thrust of this message is going to be this. Spend time with Jesus and you will be changed. Radically changed. Time is a gift and a responsibility. Sounds like I'm talking to Spider-Man. It's a gift and it's a responsibility. Think about the term daily devotions. As a Christian, what do you think of when I say daily devotions? Eh, probably Bible study, like when I open my Bible and I give some time to God. But I want you to imagine you're not a Christian for a moment. I want you to just hear the phrase daily devotions. What are you devoted to throughout your day? What are the things you're doing every day? The cycles, the repeat. What is transpiring with you during a given day? What moments have you carved out in your little box every day? See if this sounds familiar. Eyes open, yawning, stretching, hygiene, drinking, eating. Commuting, working, eating. Zoning out, working some more. Eating some more. Talking to coworkers, zoning out. Commuting, talking to your family, zoning out. Engaging with media, eating, engaging with media. Preparing food, eating. Hygiene, talking with family, eating. Laying in bed, watching media. Laying in bed, waiting to sleep. Sleeping, rinse, repeat. Does that sound familiar? Is this how we're spending our days, our every day? Where's Jesus in the mix? Now, I'm not saying to you, and I want, you, want to be clear here, I'm not saying to you that you have to be cognitively thinking every moment of every day about Jesus Christ. I think there's a tendency in some Christians to think that every waking moment is supposed to be sent with, spent with him, and any moment that is not is a waste. And I'm telling you, that's not true. Uh, married couples, let me just ask you this. Are you only married to your spouse when they're talking to you? Praise the Lord, no. You're married to your spouse whether they're talking to you or not. Some of you are like elbowing your wives. I can see this around the room. Whether you're talking to Jesus or not, he is still with you. Remember what the Great Commission said. I am with you always, even to the end of the age, which means he's always there, whether we're speaking to him or not. The question is whether or not you're speaking to him at all, whether or not he's part of your life at all, or whether or not you just disregard him week by week by week, and every day the door closes, and every day you have not built any history together. We don't want to be there. David Brainerd, um, who was a missionary to the Native American Delaware tribe, said this, Oh, how precious is time, and how it pains me to see it slide away while I don't do so little to any good purpose. And I resonate with that. Like, I look at my own life and I think, well, I could do more. You're always going to be able to say that. But Brainerd, you have to know, also struggled with clinical depression throughout his life. Uh, he was sort of that glass, mostly empty type person where, you know, he's a missionary to an Indian tribe and he's still unable to look at his life and go, something good's been accomplished. How do you feel about your time? It's not my goal to make you think that you cannot enjoy an ice cream sundae, or playing a game, or taking a nap. That's not what I'm talking about here. Do all of those things to the glory of God, but spend time with Jesus Christ every day. Make this a part of your life. 
our Lord gives us time and seasons. He gives us fast. He gives us feast. He calls us to bear our yoke, or his yoke. So he is the Lord of our labors, but he's also the Lord of the Sabbath. Our God created time for us to rest. Rest during part of your day, but for goodness sake, do so with Jesus. Spend some time with him and around him. Time creates organic imitation. Do you want to be like Jesus? Do you? Why are you doing it the hard way? Most of us go, here's my list of things I've got to do in order to be Christ-like. Do you know what's a much easier way to do it? Just be around that person. Uh, my uh, foster son, who I love dearly, Demarion, uh, has been in our home, and, and he's been there for a little while now, and he has changed me forever. I say the word same all the time. Demarion, whenever he wants to amen someone or wants to say something positive about a thing, he goes, same. And Lisa's like, you're doing that. And I'm like, I didn't intend to. It just sort of organically happened. Why? Because when we spend time with one another, we sort of become like one another. I've told you guys the story before of teaching. And, uh, and as I was starting to teach in the church and gesturing at the whiteboard, I noticed that my finger was angled oddly like this. And if you've met Steve Walker, my father, whom I sat under his tutelage for years, you know he's got his finger cut off here. It's burned it so that it... it forms this angle permanently, and just from being around him and watching him gesture and sitting under his tutelage, I naturally began doing that. I wasn't trying to. It just happened because we spent time together. What's true of other human beings is more true of spending time with Jesus Christ. If you spend time with him every day, you'll be forged into his likeness. Last week, Mike Engel said something interesting in our sermon that had me meditating on it during the week. After I preached, he got up and he said, I wonder what Jesus looked like. I wonder what he sounded like when he said particular things. I, I wonder about these various aspects of, like, like, how did he intone those words? How did he say those things? I think we can answer that question today. Have you ever met someone before and you go, I know immediately who that person is related to? Like, as soon as you see them and hear them talk, you're like, I, I know that smile, I know the voice, I know the intonation, I know everything, I know you are related to this person. I've seen Jesus. Around here. I've seen people who are the spitting image of their Savior. Will people say that about you? Do people look at you and say, he sounds just like him? He sounds like Jesus. He talks like him. He thinks like him. He behaves like him. She, she is the spitting image of her Jesus. Will that be said of you? Time will tell. You spend time with him every day, and we will know. Time yields amazing results. Let's, let's take a look at a before and after picture of Peter. Have you ever seen before and after pictures? I mean, this is an advertisement ploy used all over the place. This is what it was like before. This is what it was like after. By the way, women never get intimidated by those things because let me tell you a little trade secret on commercialism. The before picture of women who've lost weight is always right after they had a baby. So they can go, this is her. This is her three months later. And everybody's like, wow. Yeah, there was something else going on there. Time yields amazing results. Simon Peter is our case study in what life with Jesus will do to a human being. Now, I want to say this. The before picture that we're going to look at of Simon Peter, Peter's with Jesus. Peter's with Jesus in the, entire, in the entirety of the before picture. 
But there is something that happens in Acts chapter 2 that radically alters the way G Peter is with Jesus. When Peter receives the Holy Spirit, when the church receives the Holy Spirit, Peter goes from being one thing, the before picture, to something radically different, the after picture. He becomes something else entirely. And we shouldn't be surprised. Peter has Jesus before in the flesh. But remember what Jesus said, it is better that I go away so that this helper may come because I'm going to be with you in a new and dramatic way. I'll be in the Father and you will be in me and I will be in you with this, there's going to be this mystical union that takes place between us after I have gone, and it's by means of the Holy Spirit. That's Peter in the after picture. Let's look at Peter in the before picture. Peter was a fisherman. I'm not saying that is a bad thing. I'm saying this. He was not an academic. The fact that he was a fisherman meant this. It meant that he had failed out in regard to synagogue. In the first century, every family wanted their kid, every Jewish family wanted their kids to become rabbis, to become the religious elite. And so you'd send your kid to the synagogue, and they would identify those kids. Listen to how that kid memorized Torah. Listen to how he asked the right questions, or he answers the right questions with better questions. Listen to that kid, and they would get pulled aside, and they would be on the track to become a rabbi. The fact that Peter's in a fishing boat means he wasn't rabbi material. He was uneducated. Peter was not just uh, uneducated. Peter was impulsive and vacillating. Vacillating. He, he went from this to that. Impulsive. He didn't think before he acted. And praise God, that's like so many of us. We have our own little Simon Peter in our house. His name is Colton. Lisa says something to Colton like, Colton, don't touch the paint, it's wet. And before she gets too wet, his hand's already in it. That literally happens. I was standing outside with Colton a few months ago. We had that pray for our country sign out in the front yard, and we're waiting for the school bus. And uh, Colton starts kind of pushing on the sign, and I said, Colton, hey, pal, come aside, man. Don't, don't be pushing the sign over. Let's not touch the sign. And he goes, this sign? Hits it. Yeah, that's the one. This is Peter, in a nutshell. Peter just jumps in, and he does whatever. Jesus is walking on the water. Peter says, tell me to come out to you. And moments later, help me, I'm drowning. Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And everybody, him hauls around, and you're this, you're this, you're this, you're, you're a Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Some say you're, you're like John the Baptist. And then Peter just blurts it out. What would have been considered blasphemy for most Jewish people, you are the Christ, you're the Son of God. And Jesus says, yeah, man, you got it, right on. Not literally, that's... But shortly afterwards, Jesus says, hey, listen, we're going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be killed. And Peter says, never, that will never happen to you. We're not going to let that happen. And Jesus says, behind me, Satan. So from right on, buddy, you're absolutely correct to Satan. Jesus is washing feet. Peter says, no way are you going to degrade yourself like that on my behalf. Jesus says, Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part with me. To which Peter responds, well, wash my whole body. And Jesus is like, your feet will be fine. <laughs> Peter says to Jesus, all else may abandon you, but I will die with you. And within hours, he's asleep. He can't even stay awake to just be with Jesus in his moment of desperation. Peter in the garden when Jesus is being arrested says, shall I strike now? Did Jesus answer? No, he didn't have time to. Peter went swinging, right? Shall I strike now? And he just swings at a dude. 
tries to cleave his head in two, ends up cutting off the guy's ear. And Jesus heals it and says, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Peter is impulsive. Peter's also self-seeking. He was among those arguing about who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and clearly arguing for himself. Peter was cowardly. Self-preservation becomes the priority when it comes down to it. He went to the temple courtyard to see what was going on, but remember, he denied Christ and denied Christ and denied Christ. And then where was he at the cross? That's right, he was not there. He was hiding. Let's look at Simon Peter after. Look at Acts chapter 4. You'll remember the story in Acts chapter 3. Peter and John are walking to the temple courts to pray, and the Holy Spirit has come in. There are now thousands of believers, people who are followers of Jesus. Peter and John are walking to the temple, and as they're on their way, they see a man who's been lamed from birth. And Peter says, look at me. And the man looks up, and he says, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I'm going to give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And this man is lame from birth, so his legs are atrophied, shrunk down to just skin and bone. And if you read your passage, you'll, you'll see that his legs become strengthened. And the term strengthened there means enmuscled. In other words, his legs swelled up. So just visualize this, man lame from birth, his legs swell up. The guy gets up and he starts running around and he's running and leaping, praising God. And Peter and John go into the temple and the crowd rushes together at Solomon's portico. And they want to hear, they want to see what's gone on. And so the accolades are starting to pour forth toward Peter and John. But look at Peter's response. Why are you acting like we did this? It is not by our power that these things were done. Where's the, where's the self-interested, selfish Peter? This one's redirecting. This is of Christ. This is of God. And they preach, and Peter marvelously articulates not just the miracle, but he articulates the gospel message. And even after he's arrested, thousands more people come to faith that day. Who is this guy? The next day, they are drugged before court. Look at uh, chapter 4. We'll start at uh, verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all of those who were of the high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, think about how intimidating this is. These are the guys who just killed Jesus. And you're standing in the center of this room surrounded by these individuals. When they'd placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, and if you've got your Bibles, underline this, filled with the Holy Spirit. miraculously intermingling with Jesus Christ and the God of this universe. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among mankind by which we must be saved. Who is this guy? Where's the guy hiding? Where's the guy denying? These are the very people he was hiding from, and he is pronouncing in the name of Jesus Christ the power of the Lord in his name. Well, the enemies know the difference. They know what brought it about. Look at verse 13. As they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them 
as having been with Jesus. Who are, who are these untrained guys? They don't understand. We went to, we were trained as, as rabbis, as leaders, as officials. We know the scriptures backward and forward. How is it that these guys are rooking us in our own game? They were with Jesus. Will they recognize such a change in you? Will you, at the end of your days, look like a before picture or after picture? Time will tell. The time you spend with Jesus Christ right now will radically alter who you are forever. Time, it works as advertised. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 7. We should not be surprised that there was such a radical transformation in Peter. We shouldn't be surprised that there is a radical transformation going on with us as we spend time every day with Jesus. Why? Because this is exactly how Jesus told us it was going to be. Relationship with Christ works as advertised. Let's look at a dramatic scene. You might not have ever noticed some of this stuff. This is going to be fun. Let's look at our Lord make a scene. He's going to make things really uncomfortable. He's good at that. First of all, we have to begin by speaking about Sukkot. Sukkot is the festival of booths. You've probably heard that before, right? It's a Jewish tradition, Sukkot, festival of booths. It's a week long. Jewish people gather. They uh, set up tents. And it's a celebration of two things. It's a celebration of the wanderings in the wilderness, where they remember the wanderings in the wilderness. And it's a celebration of the harvest. So they've got fresh fruits. They've got all this food that is like peak prime food. And they're eating in their tents. And they're celebrating two things, harvest and they're celebrating the time in the wilderness. John chapter 7, we see Jesus in the midst of the festival of Sukkot. Now, in Leviticus chapter 23, where we're given the uh, description of what Sukkot was to be, we see that uh, God prescribes this kind of weird thing. He says, you're going to get these three kinds of branches, right? So you're going to grab willow, willow branches, you're going to have myrtle branches, you're going to have palm branches, and you're going to tie them together. So you've got three branches bound together, and then I want you to have a citron fruit. So you're going to have a fruit, branches. Fruit, branches. Got it? Well, he didn't tell them what to do. He just told them do that. And so the, the Jewish tradition is that originally people came together at the temple and the, or the tabernacle. They're all standing there, and they've got their branches, and they don't know what to do. And so they're just standing there, and the little kid starts kind of shaking his branch, and another little kid does what kids do and starts kind of emulating and shaking his branch. And suddenly everyone's shaking their branches and the unmistakable sound of rain is present. And so the Jews go, oh, oh, this festival, because it's a harvest festival, is supposed to be us celebrating the water God has given us. And they had a particular word for water that only God can give. It's living water. Living water is water that only God can give. So it's rain from the heavens or it's a spring. So it's not well water, it's not water that comes from a cistern, it's water from a spring or from a rain, okay? That's living water. That said, the two major events at Sukkot took place on the last day of the festival. The first of those events I'm just going to mention, if you have John chapter 8, open up to chapter 8, verse 12. The first event is a festival of lights, a lighting ceremony. And what they do is they take the temple court and they, they have candelabrum and they've got uh, torches and they surround and go in through the temple and around the temple and the place is just lit up and it stays that way all night. And the idea is this, this is their, their perspective of why they do this, because Messiah will be a light to the Gentiles. Messiah will be a light to the Gentiles. Now, if you look at your Bible passage in John chapter 8, we see that Jesus goes very early in the morning, which means while it's still dark. 
to the temple. As the torches are burning and the lights are all around the temple, Jesus shows up and he says this in verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Boy, that really illuminates that passage, doesn't it? That was actually not on purpose, but as soon as I said it, it was like, there it is. All right. The second ritual, the one that is important for us today, is the ritual call for living water. So here's what it looks like. I told you that the sound of the, of the branch, the, the palm branches, makes the sound of rain when everybody's shaking them. Here's what the festival looks like. The last day of Sukkot, people gather and they flood the temple courts or the tabernacle courts, if we're talking about earlier Judaism. They flood these temple courts, and then they all start shaking their branches, and they begin shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna, which means God, save us, God, save us. And they're, they're saying, hey, Lord, we need rain again this year. Thank you for the rain you've given. We need rain again this year. God, save us, God, save us. Give us living water. And so here's what happens then. As this is going on, the cacophony's building up. The high priest comes in, and he's got a vessel with him. And he walks up, and he slowly approaches the altar. The steps up to the altar. As he gets to the bottom of the steps, the crowd goes dead silent. Dead silent, pin drop silence. And he walks up to the top, and he upends this jar, but there's nothing in it. And so then the crowd bursts out again and starts saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, and they're shaking their palm leaves. And the high priest leaves the altar. He goes down across the whole city to the pool of Siloam, which is this pool that's fed by a spring, living water. And he scoops up water, and he comes back to the temple, all the way through the crowds, back up to the temple. And as he approaches the dais, the crowd goes dead silent again. And he gets up to the front, and he upends this jar over the altar. And steam and smoke go billowing up, and the people cheer loudly. Now look at this passage. John chapter 7, verse 37. Now on the last and most important day of the feast, Jesus stood and called in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. When could he have been heard saying that? There's only one moment when the cacophony stops. And it's when the high priest is going up with that dried jar about to pour it on. Visualize how uncomfortable this must be, right? It's, it's dead silent, and Jesus shouts this out. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Awkward? You bet it is. Our God's fun that way. Now, if you doubt when Jesus shouted this out, if you doubt that it was at that moment of silence, look at verse 40 through 44. I think this illustrates it was exactly that moment. Listening to these words, some of the people said, this is certainly the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed. But others said, surely the Christ is not going to come out of Galilee, is he? Does the scripture not say that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem? From the village where David lived. So the crowd was divided because of him. Look at verse 44. Some of them wanted to arrest him. Why would you want to arrest a guy who yelled out at a festival? Because it was at a very uncomfortable place that drew everybody's attention. Now, you might be thinking, well, yeah, Jesus is living water, and what a profound way to say that. But look at the text. That's not what the text says. Look at what Jesus says here, verse 37. Now, on the last and most important day of the feast, Jesus stood and called out in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, verse 38. He who believes in me, who adheres to and trusts and relies on me, as the scriptures has said, from his innermost being, will flow continually rivers of living water. 
who's the source of living water? According to this text, when we are infused with the Holy Spirit through the person of Christ, if we come to him, we approach him, the Spirit causes the water of life to flow through us. In other words, you should not be amazed that great things happen to you, that you perform great things or wonders for the Lord God when you've been in his presence, when you have come to him. Our Lord and Master is saying something about us. He's describing an after picture. If you went to camp, Christian camp, at any stage of the game, you've probably heard a song, and I must admit, I used to hate this song because I did not understand the theological significance of it. I've got a river of life. Ever heard that one? I've got a river of life flowing out of me, makes the lame to walk and the blind to see, opens prison doors, sets the captives free. Spring up, O well, fill my soul. Spring up, O well, and make me whole. Spring up, O well, and give to me that life abundantly. And I used to, maybe it's because I drank too much coffee and I had to go to the bathroom. I used to despise this song when we sang it at the church. I was like, why are we doing this? Theologically, though, it's pretty rich when you understand this passage. God has made us into wells of living water. If we spend time with him, life flows through and from us. So what will people see when they look at you? Will they be amazed? These are uneducated men. Will they note that you spent time with Jesus? They look just like their Messiah. Will they find living water flowing in endless streams from you? Time will tell. Are you spending time with Christ this year? Let's close out with our passage for memorization for the month. If you did not get an outline, grab one on your way out. We'll have questions for you from the sermon, but it also has the scripture as we will memorize it. I'll do it from memory, which is not the version that we're going to memorize. So, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus wants to spend time with you. Will he be part of your daily devotion this year? Time will tell. Let's pray. Our Lord and Master, thank you for, again for your love for us, for sending your Son to die for us. Our teacher and rabbi, Father, we praise you for the opportunity to learn from you. And Lord, I, I pray that we would not take it for granted this year, that, that we would designate time and apportion moments that we can spend with you. That our spirit may touch eternity and that eternity may be changed because of that time. We love you, O oh God. We praise you for loving us. Amen.